0: Uh, Good evening, everyone. Um, Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 26. Um, This is not a section that I uh, chose particularly. It was assigned to me for class. Um, It was supposed to be a challenge because the prophets are always uh, challenging to preach on. And so I hope the many hours I spent just trying to figure out what it means um, is a blessing to all of us. Um, But I... I commend you for being here because I realize that um, we could all be in a thousand different places right now, Um, but every opportunity to sit under the Lord's instruction is a good opportunity, and so I I thank you for being here for that, and and not based on me, but based on God, his promises do not return void, and so as we hear and learn from the word of the Lord, just know that he's working in me, and he's working in you um, this evening. So Isaiah chapter 26, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 26 verse 1 reads this, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Please bow your heads with me. Gracious Father, we pray that you would now open our heights, the eyes of our hearts, that we may see and behold the wondrous things of your word. We pray that you would move now, that you would incline our hearts and our ears and our eyes heavenward that we may see your face and be changed. Lord, be with your people as they seek your face now. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. When I, when I say the word hope, what comes to your mind? Is is hope for you something that is just a general feeling or a general wish for your day to go well? Kind of like how we say, you know, I hope your day is going well. Or is Hope maybe for you um, something that's very deep, something that has pulled you through uh, some life struggle that has gotten you through it. Well, 53 years ago, Martin Luther King delivered his last speech before his assassination. I'm um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and he talks about the state of the nation. And this is what he says: "He said the world is all messed up, the nation is sick, trouble is in the land." And confusion is all around. And this is quite similar to where we find ourselves now. But in that same speech that Martin Luther King gave, he said these words. But God has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I have looked over and I have seen the promised land. You see, the fight for civil rights saw so many setbacks, so many obstacles. But Dr. King had hope. Because God had taken him to the mountaintop and he had seen the promised land. Hope is what gets us through so much of the grind of life. It, it really motivates us to do almost anything. right? If there, was, if there was no hope, for example, why work at that hard relationship? Um, why the civil rights movement at all? Why apply for that job? Why spend so much time raising our children? More pointedly, though, I wanna ask the question that, is there any hope for the sick and for the dying? Is there hope for the single parents that are just trying to get through life? Um, Is there hope for the lonely? Hope for the daily frustrating grind of life? Are we just laboring in vain? Or does Christianity offer an authentic hope? This is the question of Isaiah chapter 26, that even when we have been defeated, even when everything looks backwards, and even when everything is going wrong, that the Lord gives us a song to sing that reminds us of the hope we have in him. And then the main point of these first six verses is this, that God has given us a steadfast hope that we may have trust, that we would have a real peace in a fallen world, that God gives us a steadfast hope, so that we would have real peace and a steadfast—I'm sorry—in a fallen world. And so, God is going to show us uh, many places where we can find hope in His salvation when everything in our lives just seemed to be going wrong or seem to be screaming chaos. And tonight, He offers this hope to you. He offers this peace to you if you would believe and put your trust in Him. And so the first point we see hope is in our salvation. And Isaiah chapter 26 begins with this. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now, before we really get in our text, we have to do some interpretive work. Because in this text, God is addressing Israel. But I want to show you how this song is our song of hope. You see, Isaiah is writing during a time where God's people are living in a tumultuous world. Um, Their peace is being challenged by the the massive Assyrian empire who has threatened to take over their land and make them slaves. And it would kind of be like if all the nations in the world currently, you know, threaten the United States and threaten to invade us, um, there would really be not much hope. Um, And so that's kind of what they're feeling. And so they really have three options before them. The obvious one would be to trust in God. Right, that'd be, but that's just too easy. They, can't, it can't be that easy, right? And so, they could trust, they could ally with Assyria, who's the aggressor, in hopes that Assyria would kind of um, be like, okay, we won't invade you, but we'll just make you pay a whole bunch of taxes. Um, the third option is they could ally with the Egypt, right, which is their enemy throughout the Bible in many places. Um, but they're not guaranteed to really send any reinforcement, and so you're kind of in this catch-22, and they don't really know what to do. And their their faith and their trust is wavering between um, God, Assyria, and Egypt. And have you ever been in a situation like that? Where just all the um, choices before you just seem rather rather tricky, and, and each have their own kind of uh, downhill to them. But God sees their folly, and Isaiah. And God gives Isaiah a message, and God says this to them. He says, In your distrust, you have rebelled against me and forsaken me, and I'm gonna send you into exile. But at the same time, God says this to him, He says, But I'm gonna return you from exile. I'm gonna return you to the land of Judah. But until that day, until that day where you learn to trust me, I'm gonna give you a song of hope. So, and in effect, God is saying, I'm gonna exile you. But remember this song when you're in slavery. Remember this song when everything is going wrong, when you're in that foreign land, because I'm gonna make good on my promises, says the Lord. It's a song of hope when everything seems to be going wrong. And so when Isaiah in our text says, in that day, he is referring to Israel returning from exile. But as Christians, this is for us today because we share in Israel's salvation through Christ, And her song has now become our song. And so as we look at verse 1, we're looking at how God gives a steadfast hope in our salvation. And the first place we see this is that he gives us a place to live. In verse 1, our song of hope begins with a strong city. Now, Now, the city is no other than the city of God. It is God's city. And Isaiah says that we have a strong city. You see, the city of God is our dwelling place. It's where we belong. It's the place of our ultimate citizenship. God has made a city for us that we would belong to him. And and the city just doesn't provide a place for us to live, but it provides a place for security. A few years ago, actually with Corey and Zida, I had a chance to uh, go to Scotland and I had the opportunity or we had the opportunity to go see the, the great castle in Edinburgh. And if you've ever been to any of the, the great castles of Europe or any of the, the castles in Asia or else around the world, what is one of the first things you see kind of as you approach the castle from afar? What, what really pops into your head or what, what do you see first with your eyes? Any, any guesses? Defensive, defensive positions, what in particular... Yeah, the stations, um, and also the walls, right? Towering, oh, he said walls? Okay, very good. Yeah, just just towering walls. And the strength of every city is really determined by its walls. And so it goes, the stronger the city, the stronger the walls. But in the city of God, verse 1 says something rather peculiar. There's no physical wall. There's no ditches in this city and no bulwarks, but something much stronger is present instead of an earthly defense in the city of god salvation are its walls you see a physical wall is not going to guard god's people god himself will god will guard his church with salvation and and what is remarkably absent from this verse is us right we do not build a thing but that's what makes it so strong. That is that if we laid one brick in this wall of salvation, it would be compromised. Salvation is the work of God alone. And it will become impenetrable if, we, if God alone does that work. And, and the great hymn writer, we sometimes sing it here, says it this way. He says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, and naked Come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. The city of God must be built by God alone. He will hold us fast. He will see to it that we are more protected than any fortress can protect us. This is God's city, and all who enter it shall never be overcome. And and Jesus says it this way in John 6. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All who belong to Jesus has the hope that we are held firm in his hands, that it is the Father's will that Jesus would lose none of us. Church, we have a strong city, a salvation that we can trust in, that whatever life throws at you, we are held secure. And this is our hope that in neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is hope. So we have seen that the city of God is a place of security, a place where we can live and dwell. But there's another city. And you see, the city of God is compared to the city of man in the previous chapters. And, and the city of man is this, um, this city that trusts in its own security. It has a, a relative peace, but it, it's without God. And, and so if you do not belong in the city of God, you're at risk. For walls of stone cannot save you from what threatens you most, and that's your sin. You see, walls can keep evil men out, but they lock evil men in. And a heart that does not belong to God belongs to sin. And the only way that you can be rescued from yourself, the only way to be rescued from your sin is to be rescued by someone who's outside of you, who has no sin. And that alone is Christ. But for those whose hope is in God, who belongs to the city of God, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. we have a city of refuge that is built and protected by God. But my question is, is how do we enter into this city? Right? How do we know that we belong in the city of God? How do we know that this salvation is really ours, that it can provide an authentic hope? And this is the topic of verse two, when it says, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Before I became a Christian, I thought, as many of you perhaps, that as long as I was a good person, that that would be enough for me to enter into heaven. I mean, I certainly did many more good things than bad things I reasoned to myself back then. Um, So surely, if God was a just judge, I mean, he would have to let me in, right? Um, What I didn't know when I became a Christian in college is that God requires perfection, That one bad act, one sin was enough to eternally disqualify me from his salvation. We need righteousness to be acceptable to God. But we don't have it. What we have is sin. So God has a righteousness that we need. We have the sin that he hates. So what does he do about it? Our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid on us. And this righteous requirement is the requirement that is needed by all to enter into God's city. And this is the hope that the gates of the city are opened for all who open their hearts to Christ. We can have a hope because God opens the, opens the gate to his city And the openness of the city of God, the ease by which we may enter into his city, shows us that he desires for his city to be occupied. He desires our entrance, that God is zealous for his city to be full. He desires that entire nations would enter into his city, that all would experience the refuge and the security of his city. And Jesus calls the church the city on a hill. The city of God is placed on a hill where all can see it, that all may see and marvel and desire to come in. You see, God is not afraid to show his salvation to the world like sometimes we are in our evangelism. He wants all to see his city so that all who would believe would come in. And, and like we said, the only requirement is righteousness, which which means to be right with God. The city of God can have no affiliation with the city of man, because righteousness must mark all. And this is not a burden. Righteousness, it's not something that we come to and say, how am I going to get this, God? It's our hope, because it is hopeful, because we don't need our own righteousness to get into this city, right? We are free from proving ourselves to God. We do not need to obtain our own righteousness. It's that he builds the city and then he pays the entrance requirement for us to get in. Praise God that he does that. In these next verses, God wants to offer the church another hope. And this is verses three through four, and it's the hope of perfect peace. Verse four says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, often in these verses, if you, when I had trouble going through this uh, sermon and really trying to understand these words, you can find hundreds of sermons upon verses 3 and 4. I mean, they just abound. But you look for a sermon on anything other than Isaiah chapter 26, and it's a whole bunch of zero. It's nothing. It's like nobody wants to touch it. You'd probably have to go like 200 years where pastors were educated enough and weren't afraid of their Bibles and Isaiah to say, you know what, I'm going to preach through Isaiah. You just don't see it these days. Um, but what often, when we look at these verses, you, you see this, this entire sermons on verse 3 and talking about how we can have peace with God. What you don't really see is that this is actually a claim about God. And what I mean by this is the primary actor in these verses about peace is not us. It's God. He's the one who's able to keep us in perfect peace. This is a claim about God's ability and secondarily a claim about us trusting in him. So we should marvel first that God is able to keep us in perfect peace. I mean, what a claim this is, that he says that he can keep my mind at peace, right? My anxious, my wandering mind. I mean, that's a strong God, I mean, I can get anxiety over so many things, and I'm sure you are the same as well. But the mere fact that he can keep us in perfect peace says this about God, is that he is the only one who can and promises to satisfy your deepest desires and longings. Because our, our deepest desires, for example, of love, keep us ever searching where our souls are ever searching for comfort in this world, always searching to be fit in. And apart from God, we will die searching for these things. But God's peace is so good that when we long for someone to love us, he says to us, I'll love you. When we look for comfort in food, he says to us, I'll feed you. And when we desire just to be, just to fit in, he says to us, I'll be your friend. We can have peace because God has promised to satisfy our deepest longings and desires. And for us as Christians, we are called to trust God to experience this perfect peace. Now, in the ESV translation, um, it says perfect peace. And some other translations might say something else. But either way, in the original language, it does not say that. What it says is peace, peace. It says, everybody with me, shalom, shalom. Can you say that? So that's what the text actually says. It's shalom, shalom. And our English Bibles say that it's perfect peace. And for good reason, because it is it's a total sense of peace. It's a superlative peace. It's a, it's a peace that can only be experienced in a relationship with God. It is not something that this world could ever give you. It transcends all understanding. But it is offered to us by the mighty God through trust. Now, this is not the case with the city of man. Remember that the city of man is this world, and and we're also tempted to be a part of the city, are we not? Um, But the reality is that their hope is fleeting and fading. See, the world chases after financial security. They, They rest in their children's education, they, they put all their faith in their spouses or children, um, desires for popularity, good looks, and health. But none of them promise perfect peace. Or they do promise it, but they can never give them what they promise. Only God does that. But in the city of God, for those who put their trust in him, verse 4 says, he is the rock. That is, he is dependable. He is reliable. He is faithful. He is constant. He is unwavering and unfailing, trustworthy and true, a place of refuge and protection. But he is not just a rock. He's the everlasting rock, verse 4 says, the rock that does not move. He's the rock that is always present, the rock that holds. You see, everlasting hope can only come from an everlasting being, and that alone belongs to God. So we we have seen that God can give us a peace through satisfying our desires, but there's still a major obstacle to our hope in this world um, that we haven't addressed yet, and and that's the problem of evil. It's the problem of of sin. It's the problem of wrongdoing, of of all the the wickedness in the world. Uh, You see, hope is not complete unless somebody deals with the problem of sin. and in verses 5 through six this is um, we get a glimpse of what God does to wickedness, what he does to evil and it's a place of hope for us. Verses 5 through six tell us this and this is, these are the last verses that God has humbled the lofty city and lays it low. and and what's interesting about this is that he's trying to show us that it is utter foolishness. It's foolishness to trust in the city of man, to trust in the security of their walls because God has brought them to ruin. He has destroyed the city. You see, it, it's one thing to put your hope in an underdog, right? We just saw the Super Bowl. So it's one thing to say, you know what? You know, the Bucks, they're not maybe as good as the other team, but you know, we all desire you know, for the underdog to win or for the lesser team to win. But it's another thing to put your hope in a team that's already lost in something that's already been defeated, and something that's already been condemned. And this is how foolish it is when we put our desires and we put our hopes in the things of this world. You see, the world is fading. It's temporary. It's in in a state of degradation. Yet time after time, even as Christians, we come back to it like a dog does to its vomit. But this is foolishness because we don't live here. This is this is not our home. See, a performing stock market is not our peace. Food is not our primary sense of comfort. Our president is not our savior. Uh, popularity and the affirmation of others is not the sum of our identities. Church, this earth is not where we belong. This is not our ultimate home. There was a um, in Belarus. There there was a famous rabbi. His name is. Chovetz Chaim, which in Hebrew means desire of life. This is his nickname. That wasn't his birth name. Um, but this is a true story. He died about 50 years ago. And very famous rabbi, um, he wrote several books on um, the Levitical law. And there was a tourist who really liked this rabbi. And he happened to be traveling in Belarus. And he wanted to go see him and just to see how he lived And and just, you know, just to meet the guy who, you know, he's read his books. And so he's in this town in Belarus, and he asks some people, and, you know, they told him that the rabbi does accept visitors and and would welcome him. And so he goes to this rabbi's house, and he knocks on the door, and the rabbi greets him. He says, you know, hey, rabbi, um, I'm so-and-so. Do you mind if I come in? And he goes, absolutely. So this tourist uh, walks into this house, small house, and all he sees is this one large room. He sees a table. He sees some chairs, um, a couple cots for sleeping, and then a whole bunch of books everywhere. And so surprised was this tourist that this is what he says. He goes, Rabbi, where is all your furniture? And Rabbi Chaim replied, my furniture? Where's your furniture? And And the tourist was just confused by the claim. He goes, my furniture? He goes, I'm just a visitor. And the rabbi calmly replied, so am I. So am I. We are pilgrims in a world that is not our own. And God lays low. He humbles the world so that we would not trust in it. To remind us that we don't belong to them, but we belong to him. And so rather, put your hope in the everlasting rock that is God, whose promises do not fade. And finally, when God destroys the city of man, I want to Point our attention to verse 6. Who are the benefactors of God's judgment? Verse 6 says it's the city of God. God lays low the city of man, and all we do is trample it. You see, victory belongs to God, and all we do is enter in to what he's already done. Notice the verse does not say that we fight, but simply trample upon what God has done in his judgment. So in essence, Isaiah is telling us that it is better to be among the poor, better to be among the humble, than to be a part of the mighty who will be triumphed over. So where is your hope today? Is it in the mighty city of God, or is it in the trampled and condemned city of man? See, God has given us a secure city, a city whose walls are salvation, who's protected by God himself. It's a city that promises perfect peace for all who trust in him. Will you trust in the city that is already destroyed or will you trust in the city that is built on the everlasting rock of God? Will you pray with me?